Please turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. As I said a moment ago, it's the conclusion of our study, and so I've entitled the sermon, The End of the Matter. Uh, it's been approximately 14 months, and I think 48 messages uh, through this book. And we come to what is called the benediction and the final greetings, the headings in the ESV Bible anyway. And it's easy for us to pass over these verses like it's sort of a formality, right? And not really pay close attention. We can do the same thing when we come to the greetings at the beginning of uh, epistles. And many times we miss important things when we do that. But it is God's words and it is inspired and there are riches here for us to mine if we'll slow down and pay attention. So this morning, I want to spend a, a few minutes, first of all, just talking about the practice of pronouncing benedictions at the end of the service. Uh, in Reformed worship, uh, we make that, that, that has been a tradition from earliest days. And it is something that we could look at and say, well, it's just a formality. That's how we know that it's time to, time to go home or time to end the service and visit with each other for a while and not go home yet. Uh, but... There's more to that in that moment that we take to pronounce a benediction. And I want us to look at that and see that benedictions are actually quite significant. So there are three simple divisions of this message. Number one is just a few questions regarding benedictions. What are they about and so forth. Secondly, we're going to look specifically at this benediction in Hebrews chapter 13. And then finally, we'll look briefly at the concluding greetings that we find at the end of the chapter. So, first of all, let's look at uh, a few questions about benedictions. Now, at first, I, I, I entitled that point, frequently asked questions about benedictions. But the fact is, we don't ask those questions frequently. We just don't even think about it very much, but we should. Uh, so, first of all, what is a benediction? Well, the word benediction means a blessing. It's the pronunciation, the pronouncing of a blessing from God. It's, it's, it's like a final prayer for the people, but you're not so much invoking God to, to, to do something that he's promised to do. Rather, you're reminding the people, you're, in, you're, you're pronouncing that God is going to do what he has promised to do. It's, 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 it's pronouncing a blessing. It's reminding people of those promises of God. Uh, the very first benediction we find in the Bible is from Numbers chapter 6. Uh, God instructs Moses to, uh, to have this, what has been called this Aaronic blessing. In number 6, 22 to 27, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying. And so, so very specifically, Aaron and his sons are told to pronounce this blessing, this benediction over the people of God. Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, we've all heard that Aaronic benediction or that Aaronic blessing many times. And do you realize that God has told Moses, and by extension, he's telling us to pronounce this blessing over his people, and thus, we put his name upon us. It marks us as his people. Now, there's a difference between a blessing and a doxology. It's just a little side note here. A benediction pronounces a blessing from God to us. The Lord bless you, keep you. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are pronunciations of blessing to the people of God. A doxology is a declaration of praise to God 
or a blessing to God. Uh, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, be all praise and honor and glory and so forth. That is a declaration of praise to God. And in general, we end our services with a pronunciation of a benediction. It's not wrong to end with a doxology, but in general, we use a benediction. You might ask the question, well, where do benedictions come from? Well, the short answer is the Bible. We find them uh, sprinkled throughout the Scriptures, a number in the Old Testament, but nearly uh, every epistle, somewhere toward the end, it's not always the last thing, but somewhere toward the end of the epistle, we find this benediction, this pronunciation of blessing on the people of God. And so here in Hebrews 13, toward the end, uh, we find this pronunciation of blessing with a very brief doxology. If you look at verse uh, 21, uh, that, that, uh, that may God equip you with everything good. You may do his will, working that, uh, in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. That's blessing. But then this benediction, or excuse me, this doxology, to whom, to the Lord Jesus, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here we have a little bit of combination, which is kind of unusual, but that's okay. It's wonderful, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the classic Trinitarian benediction in the New Testament is found in First or Second Corinthians 13, verse 14, where Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in that pronunciation of blessing. Uh, now, there's some pastors, they use the very same benediction every time they preach. Uh, if you've been here a while, you remember Pastor Nick Alford always used the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. I think he still does, which says, may God himself, the God of all, of God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, Nick doesn't do this every sermon because that's the only one that he knows. It's because it's driving home a very important truth that he, week after week, wants to put before the people of God. And uh, again, it's very individual. Uh, I think benedictions are something of an element of worship. In other words, I believe they're warranted in Scripture for us to do it. But which benediction you choose and when you use it and how you use it, uh, there's circumstances involved. Elements are, you ought to do this. Circumstances is how you work that out. And those are more individual based on circumstances, based on the, the, the persons involved. But in our study of Hebrews, I've used this benediction almost every week. Uh, when I'm preaching in other texts, I frequently will uh, choose a benediction that, that lines up with the main theme that, that is coming through that sermon. But it's individual. And there are respected and reformed pastors who have sort of taken a compilation of biblical passages and, 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 and put them together and have their own benediction that's not actually a quotation from Scripture, but it's a compilation of numerous Scripture passages. And again, that's, that's fine. Uh, or you can take Paul's prayers and make that a benediction. For instance, in Philippians 1, 9 to 11, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And Paul says, this is what I pray for you. Well, you could turn that into a benediction by simply saying, and now may your love abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment and so forth. And it's per perfectly legitimate to do that. So that's where they come from. But I want you to notice here in this, uh, excuse me, 
third question to look at is, why does the pastor pronounce a benediction? Well, the Bible gives us numerous examples of doing that very thing. And these epistles end with benedictions, which put for us uh, an example of how we're to proclaim God's Word. Uh, The epistles were sent to the churches, and everybody doesn't get a copy, right? Uh, It's handwritten and sent to the church, and it's read in the public meeting. Something that occurred to me this morning in the shower. I've never thought about this before. But you remember at the end of Paul's life, he writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, bring the scrolls. And we don't have any idea what those scrolls were. Were they Old Testament books? We don't know. But, but scrolls were very rare because they were all hand copied. Or when Paul sent an epistle, when he sent a letter to a particular church, did he have his own copy that he kept? I kind of think that'd be a good idea. But you know, I don't know. I've never thought about it before and I've never seen anybody mention it before. But what were the scrolls? I don't know. But there is a pattern of benedictions, whether it's in the Aaronic blessing, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. But there's this tradition throughout uh, not just church history, but through biblical history, redemptive history of pronouncing this blessing from God that goes all the way back at least to the book of Numbers and is carried forward through the New Testament. So, as, as, as Reformed believers, we believe in what's called the regulative principle of worship which means you don't introduce human inventions. We don't get cute and creative in what we include in our worship services. We include those elements that God has established, things like preaching and praying and reading of Scripture and giving and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, but also benedictions. But how you work that out is a circumstance. Do the people stand the whole time? People stood for hours listening to Jesus teach. Uh, We're not that. We sit. And uh, do we have air conditioning or not? And do we have, you know, so forth. Those are circumstances that each church works out on their own. But when the pastor pronounces a benediction, he is carrying out this this uh, consistent stream, this tradition, if we can call it that, that goes all the way back to at least the book of Numbers. But I want you, it's important that we recognize that this is not a magical incantation. We're not, you know, not saying some kind of magical thing that happens here. We're simply declaring the blessing of God that he's already promised for his people. This is true, and this is what God said he will do for you. And it serves for each of us as a solemn reminder of his kindness, of his mercy, of his grace to us, of his faithfulness. And so the pastor, at the concluding of the ser- conclusion of the service, pronounced the blessing on the people, and the people receive that blessing. One of the articles I read about this in the Presbyterian uh, uh, book of church order, it says, only an ordained elder is allowed to pronounce the benediction in a worship service. Uh, we, I don't know that among Baptists we have that kind of, uh, kind of uh, codified uh, uh, standards, but I think it's a good idea that, uh, that that's the case. However, uh, we'll move on. If we had a, a man who is gifted to preach, but he's not an elder, I don't know that we would say you can't pronounce the benediction. Uh, but the elders might take me out in the woodshed over that one. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but the, the pastor pronounces the benediction. The people receive the benediction. So the question is, how do you receive the benediction? Uh, now, we're, at the end of our services, we're already standing. So we stand to receive the benediction, right? But when I do a wedding, I don't ask the people, stand for the benediction. They, they, they remain seated. Whether you're standing or sitting is kind of a circumstance. 
There's no standard posture that is the right way to receive the benediction. Some, you're looking at the pastor. Some bow their heads and close their eyes. Some are looking to the sky as if they're looking up to heaven. And it's, it's symbolic, whichever you're doing, but it's helping you meditate and receive those truths. Some hold your hands open as if to receive the blessing poured out upon you. Again, there's nothing tangible that lands in your hands, but it's symbolic of receiving. And some of you do that. Uh, there's nothing says you have to do it. There's nothing says you shouldn't do it. Uh, but that's uh, whatever helps you to profit the most from that benediction is a good idea. But the point is, it's not just a formality. We must listen. Our attention should be focused. Parents, teach your kids uh, when the pastor stands to do the benediction at the end of the service, this isn't the time to start collecting your stuff. It's the time to listen and pay attention and take heed and be encouraged spiritually with what God promises to his people. And our goal is that as we go out from here, we leave encouraged and we go out into the week, we go out into the world with the encouragement of the blessing and the grace of God on our hearts. So let's look now at this benediction that we actually find here in Hebrews verses 13, or chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Ligon Duncan says this is a beautiful covenantal benediction, and I think he's right. Tom Schreiner said it's one of the most theologically rich benedictions that you'll find in the New Testament. So let's look at it. Remember, what is Hebrews about? It's, it emphasizes that Jesus is superior to Moses. He's superior to angels. He's superior to the priests of the old covenant, and that the new covenant uh, sealed in the blood of Jesus is superior to the old covenant sealed in the blood of bulls and goats and so forth. And so, we have this benediction drawing our attention back to the wonder and the glory of the new covenant. There are seven parts to it. In the first part of this benediction, let me read it and I'll break it down. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's all a whole lot of stuff before you get to the verb. The, the subject is may the God of all peace. But may God <clears throat> equip you with everything good that you may do as will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing we need to see is the bestower of the blessing. Who is the one who does the blessing here? It's God, the God of peace. Now, the preacher is pronouncing the blessing, but he is not blessing you out of himself. He is pronouncing the blessing which God gives to his people. He is, and I want you to see he's, in this context, the God of peace. And that really means the God who is the source of peace, God who is the giver, God is the originator of peace. Now, if you go back in the book of Hebrews, you find these many solemn warnings about not falling away, not wandering off, not reverting back to Judaism. In chapter 12, it ends with a call to worship God acceptably, and it says, for our God is a consuming fire. In chapter 10, verse 31, it, uh, it, it's challenging us not to wander off, not to, not to deny the faith. And it says, for our God, uh, or excuse me, he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so, it'd be very easy to read this book with much fear and trembling. But from this very beginning of this benediction, from the very outset, our focus is on God as the God of peace. 
the God who blesses us richly. He's the God who established a covenant. And in keeping with that covenant, he gives us peace. It's a fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, uh, therefore, having been justified, or since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the bad news of the gospel, and there's bad news before there's good news, by the way, the bad news of the gospel is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were at enmity with God. There was a, there was a, a, a breach between the natural man and God. We were opposed to him, and consequently, he was opposed to us in a sense. And in that state, it would be a dreadful thing to fall into his hands of judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has taken away that hostility. He's not only cleansed us of our sins, he has atoned. uh, He's fully satisfied God's righteous demands, his wrath, and reconciled us to God. He's given us peace. So God is no longer our judge. Is our Father. For the Christian in Christ is no longer a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Yes, God is to be viewed with great reverence because he's holy. And if we see how the angels uh, and the, the living creatures in heaven uh, uh, worship God with awe, with wonder, with amazement, and they had no sin, and they were there day and night every day, it's not like they got used to it or anything. Uh, That's a pattern for how we ought to approach God in his glory, in his majesty. But he's not our judge. He's the God of peace. He's the God who makes peace with us. He's the God who provides peace for us, even in the midst of affliction. Jesus told his disciples the night he was going to be betrayed and put on trial the night before he was going to be crucified, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Don't let your heart be frightened. Don't be afraid. That's the good news of the gospel. We have peace. And the writer wants us to know that the God whom we serve, the God of the covenant, is a God of peace. And because we have peace with God, we also have the privilege of peace of God. As Philippians 4, 7 says, a peace that passes all comprehension, a peace that is unexpected. It's surprising in the midst of sometimes great affliction. And again, Hebrews is written to afflicted believers, believers who are being persecuted, who are facing pressure from the world about their faith. And it's in that context that they're reminded that God is for us the God of peace. And when circumstances of this life mitigate against that peace, would steal that peace from us, God is still the God of peace. And the proof, secondly, that God is the God of peace is that he brought Jesus, or brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus. Now, this is the only explicit mention in the book of Hebrews of Jesus' resurrection. But his resurrection is represented numerous places, and it's essential to the very message of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 4, we find that Jesus is our great high priest who passed through the heavens. And that's an allusion to the, the, the priest in the old covenant system who would go through on the day of atonement once a year, he would go through the veil into the holy of holies with blood to place it upon the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of his people. And so passing through the heavens is the fulfillment of that image, Jesus going into the heavens, passing through the veil as it were, in the very presence of God, uh, uh, having presented his own blood, shed his own blood for us. But he couldn't do that 
shed blood, and then go into the heavens like that had he not risen from the dead. And so the resurrection is essential to Jesus being our great high priest. He is the offering, but he's also the offerer of that great sacrifice. In chapter 5, verse 7, it tells us that Jesus was saved from death by God. As a, great, as a priest, he was saved from death. And again, that points to the resurrection. Chapter 6, verses 9, 19, and 20, again, back to that priestly uh, allusion of entering to the inner place behind the curtain that Jesus becomes the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then we read in chapter 7, verse 3, that he is without end of life. Well, we know he died, but he rose from the grave and never to die again. He lives forever as a priest, forever. He died once for all, rose once for all, and he lives forever. And the reason he can be called our high priest forever is because he died and he rose. He was the offering. He was the offerer, the one who takes away our sins. And when he died, God the Father raised him from the dead. And Paul tells us that the resurrection itself was a proof that God received, God accepted his sacrifice. We are justified through his resurrection, Paul tells us in Romans. So it's proof that the God of peace, who made peace with us, accepted that sacrifice that in fact gives us peace with him. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, And then we find this glorious title of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. Does that surprise you a little bit? Because throughout Hebrews, we've talked about Jesus as the great high priest, the mediator of a new covenant. But now he's called the shepherd of the sheep. That's not the office or that's not the relationship with him that I would have personally expected to see here in this benediction. We think of the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, and his offices and his functions toward us, but he's also our good shepherd. In fact, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. They know me. I call them by name. He goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. Once again, I receive this from my Father. So he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, that's an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 34. Remember, throughout Hebrews, there's lots and lots and lots of allusions to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 34, verse uh, 15, uh, the Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Now, I want you to see God is speaking of himself, uh, and I believe this is Christ pre-incarnate, as the shepherd, but I want you to see that there's a covenantal connection here. Verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Again, Jesus is a shepherd like David. But in verse 25, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. He is, as a function of this covenant of peace God has established, he is our shepherd. And so we find that illusion here in this benediction. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, established in the new covenant, sealed in his blood. Charles Spurgeon points out you can't make a covenant with sheep. The covenant's made with the shepherd, between God the Father 
and God the Son. From all eternity, there was a covenant of redemption. But within the Trinity, the triune God, the Father, shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Sovereign election is attributed to God the Father in Scripture. The Son became man, took on human flesh to himself, and died. He laid down his life for the sheep, for his people, to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. He purchased us with his own shed blood. The Holy Spirit, at the appropriate time in each one of our lives, came to us and, and, and gave us new life. We passed from death to life by his, uh, his work, his regenerating work. He gave us faith, he gave us repentance, and he gave us life in Christ. And that covenant of redemption took place within the Trinity, and we're the beneficiaries of that covenant. We were like wandering sheep, going astray, going our own way. But the Lord Jesus laid down his life for us. The Spirit drew us because God the Father had set his heart upon us from all eternity. We have a good shepherd who calls us by name. The fourth thing I want you to see in this benediction is the means of this resurrection. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, but God brought, a dead, uh, brought from the dead the Lord Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant. It was God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, and he did so in fulfillment of this eternal covenant of redemption sealed in the blood of Christ. One of the major themes in the book of Hebrews is Jesus' blood shed for us and the, 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 the establishment of this new covenant. And the resurrection is proof that his sacrifice was accepted, that this covenant was in fact established. It was proof that his blood has cleansed us of our sins once and for all. There will be no need for any further sacrifice. It is finished. I want you to stop. I want you to think about this very carefully for a minute. The covenant of redemption is an eternal covenant. And I said a moment ago that before we were, before we came to Christ, we were in enmity with God. But within the, the covenant of redemption and the sovereign decrees of God, from all eternity, God had purposed, God had covenanted within the Trinity to redeem for himself a people. And so, Christian, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is true. There's never been a time that God did not love you in Christ. His saving love for you did not begin when you repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. It was already there. Long before you actually repented and trusted in Christ, the Spirit had begun a work of drawing you, and sometimes that takes years. There's a quickening moment, but sometimes the influences he brings to bear in our lives actually takes a long time. And he's been drawing you with cords of love to himself. But his saving love for you did not begin when the Spirit began to draw you. The Son went to the cross and died to pay for your sins. We believe in particular redemption. He didn't die simply to provide salvation in hopes that some people would repent. He died to save his people to cleanse us, to forgive us. His blood has power to actually save all those whom God had set his heart upon from eternity through sovereign election. But long before Jesus took on human flesh, long before Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood for you, God's saving love was already upon you. 
He has loved us from all eternity. He's established this, this covenant of redemption. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So, Christian, let this sink in. Think about it. From when, when, when the triune God, when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into this covenant of redemption, which is actually eternal. We speak of it as if it happened in time, but it, it, it's eternal. But you are on God's heart and mind individually. Our names are graven on his hands from that point forward, which really is for, forever. There's never been a time, Christian, there's never been a time that God did not love you in his son, Jesus. So the blessing coming to us, uh, being given to us from God, is the God who gives peace, the God who raised his son from the dead, the God who made a covenant with his son to become our great shepherd, and the God who accepted the blood that was shed for us as an acceptable sacrifice to cleanse us of our sins. So that's the kind of the introduction. That's the subject of the sentence. God who has done these things. But now the verb, the action, the actual blessing that's invoked here in verse 21. Uh, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Verse 20 describes the God who's at work in us through the Lord Jesus Verse 21 describes the work that God is doing in us through the Lord Jesus. Now, again, we go back to chapter 12, and what do we find? We find that we are called to run with endurance the race that God has marked out for us. We are to run this race of faith, and we're to finish well. We're not to be uh, sidelined. We're not to wander off. We're not to lose heart. We're not to abandon the faith. Well, what is God's will for you? It's to do that with whatever's pleasing in his sight. It pleases the Lord for us to trust him. It pleases the Lord for us to run with endurance. It pleases the Lord for us to seek to live in a manner pleasing him. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Ephesians 2.10 says, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we find this interplay between the sovereignty of God preparing specific good works for you and you and you and you and me, and then our responsibility believing that I am his workmanship with specific things God wants me to do. So I need to get busy doing those things. But he's at work in me, through me, accomplishing his purposes. I, I, I've said this before. I read a novel many years ago. It was a Christian novel of a father He's a widower who had two young adult daughters uh, back in the ages of the Puritans. And every morning they would come down for breakfast and he would say, what does the Lord have for you to do today? And just a, a wonderful greeting to, to kind of orient their minds to where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what's God's will? What's God's will for you to grow in grace? It's God's will that you and I are more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. It's God's will that we obey his word, that we live holy lives. It's God's will that we do the work which he has prepared for us to do. And it's God's will that we run with endurance, that race that's marked out for us to the very end. You remember Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, toward the end of his life, he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And it's God's will that every single one of his children can make the very same statement at the end of our lives. But you can't do that in your own power. 
You and I don't have what it takes. We don't have the resources to fight that good fight and to run that race all the way to the end in our own power, in our own strength. It's not possible. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to. That Jesus redeemed us not only from the penalty of our sin, but also the bondage to sin. It gets even better than that. He makes us his people. He delights over us, and he will equip us to do everything that he is calling us to do. In Ephesians 1, Paul, there there are two glorious prayers of Paul in Ephesians, chapter 1 and chapter 3. But in chapter 1, Paul prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, get this. How great is the power toward you and me who believe? Well, he says, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Get that? God is saying, I want you to know that I'm at work in your life. And the measure of the power that is at work in you is demonstrated by raising Jesus from the dead. Resurrection power is at work in God's people. It's not that you can go around wielding power, you know, like like a magician or something. No, God's power is at work in you to do that which he is calling you to do. And you say, "I, I, I feel so weak. It doesn't matter how we feel. These are objective realities. He will equip and he will enable in spite of what the enemy tells you and in spite of what your feelings tell you. Now, there are some who are physically robust and are able to do much more. There are some who are spiritually robust, able to do much more. Some are physically feeble, infirm. Some are spiritually feeble. And the expectation of what God wants you to do in that condition might vary. But hear me, he will give you what you need to do what he wants you to do exactly where you are, in your stage of life and in the challenges that you face. And the resurrection is not only proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted, it is that. It's also a demonstration of just how much power God is devoting to completing the work he's begun in you and in me. May he equip you with everything good that you may do, his will. And his power is sufficient to pull that off. In in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we looked at this a few weeks ago, we read, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. A book was written based on that by one of the Puritans called No Holiness, No Heaven. And when we read that and realize without holiness, I won't see the Lord, and it might cause your knees to buckle a bit because you and I are generally keenly aware that we're not holy like we need to be. And we wonder, how is that even possible? But see, the promise of Philippians 1, 6 is true. He who began a good work will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. It's our confidence. He started it. He'll finish it. You know, that, that promise is important in evangelism. I've had situations where I've talked to people before that have said, I recognize what you're saying is true, and I know that I need to do this, but I don't, think I, could, I don't think I can pull it off. I don't think I could finish. I think at some point I would stray off. I, I, don't, think, I don't want to start something and I won't finish. And we can go to that and say, well, listen, if God has begun this good work in you, and I don't know that for sure he has, but if God is the one who's begun this good work in you, the promise is not... You need to gut it out. It's that he will complete it. And so you can relax about worrying about whether or not you have what it takes. Jesus has what it takes. 
And he'll complete that good work in you. May he equip you with everything you need, everything good you need to do his will. You know, whenever I travel, I don't know if you're like this or not, I always have this sense, what did I forget? Right? You know, I left for my honeymoon and I left my shaving kit behind. Well, that's not that bad. All right? But a year ago, I was, uh, I was on a mission trip doing pastoral training, first in Nepal, then India. So I spent my week in Nepal. It was wonderful, great. Got a flight from Butual, the place that I was doing the training, to Kathmandu, the capital of, of Nepal. And then I went to make my connection to get on the flight to go to India. I got all the way to the gate or to the front to the desk, and I hand the guy my, my uh, reservation slip with a confirmation number on it, and he looks at it and goes, you're not on this flight. What do you mean I'm not on this flight? You're not on the flight. You don't have a reservation. Sir, I've got the confirmation right here. I don't know where you got that from, but you're not on the flight. I got in touch with my travel agent and found out that she actually had made the reservation and ran the credit card, and she sent me a note and said, by the way, the credit card didn't clear for that particular flight, so you just need to check on it. Well, that went... And now I'm standing here, and I don't have the most essential thing that I need to get on that plane and continue the work that I'd gone there to do. In the providence and grace of God, I was able to fly out the next day and, and, and continue. But that sinking feeling that I don't have what is absolutely essential, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. My bags were packed. My lessons were prepared. I thought I had everything, and I had a printed out confirmation number, but I was not on that flight. And hear hear me, if you're not in Christ, you're not on the flight. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your name is not on that register. If you're a Christian, the evidence is you're going to be growing in holiness. And there are people who say, I'm a carnal Christian. That means I still live like the world, but, but I got a fire insurance policy. No holiness, you're not on the flight. You don't get on. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. But here's the good news. God will equip us with everything that we need to do his will that we might finish the race. Thomas Brooks says, or Richard Brooks rather says, the more we're made like Jesus, the more we will do God's will. And the more God will be pleased with what he sees in us. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And the more he works that out in us, the more God is pleased with what he sees in us as he sees his son's image shining more brightly. Again, Hebrews emphasizes we must pursue holiness. But the reality is only God can produce holiness in his child, and he will do it. Well, the next thing I want you to see is the means of our equipping. How does that actually come about? It's through Jesus Christ. Please don't miss this. Jesus, who is the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, is also the great high priest. And daily, he intercedes for us. And because that is so, you can be confident as he intercedes for you that this blessing is going to come to pass. God will complete the work that he's begun in his child. All the way until he returns to take us to himself. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross simply to pay for our sins, to forgive us, to give us new life, and then say, now you go work it out and do the best you can. No, he is beginning the work. He is completing the work by his grace. Daily, he works in us through the Holy Spirit. Daily, he intercedes for us 
before the Father. Daily, he invites us to come boldly before his throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Commentator B.F. Westcott says this. He says, the work of God makes man's work possible. Isn't that great? God's work in you is what makes your work possible. And I would say not just possible, but he secures it by his grace. Well, then we find this benediction, the proclamation that God will do this. And then we find a closing doxology, which is not in most benedictions, but it is here. To whom, speaking of Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember the song around the throne in Revelation chapter 5? All these angels and living, all these living creatures falling down before the Lord and saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He deserves the praises of heaven. He deserves the praises of his people. He is worthy of all glory forever and ever. For, from eternity past, Jesus entered into a covenant with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And at a particular time, Galatians calls the fullness of time, he took on human flesh, he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of God's law. Then he died, he willingly laid down his life for the sheep. Then God raised him up again. He ascended to the right hand of God. And for all eternity, he will receive the glory due his name. Remember Philippians 2, speaks of how Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee would bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is not just for the day of judgment. That's for all eternity. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing the glory and praise of our Lord Jesus. Well, just, just uh, briefly, I want to look at these, finally, these concluding greetings in verses 22 to 25. These are some personal comments, and, and we find those at nearly uh, most of the epistles in the New Testament. And they, they, they give us just some interesting tidbits about the writer and about the, the, the recipients. Now, we're not going to dive in deep and unpack every detail, but just a, a few things that I want to say. First of all, he gives an appeal. I appeal to you, bear with my word of exhortation. And he calls it brief. <laughs> uh, people have commented, oh, what do you mean by brief? This is not like, you know, two pages or something. But the point is we all by nature want all kinds of positive, encouraging things said to us, right? And he writes some really tough things. He writes some challenging things. We don't necessarily want to be warned. We don't necessarily want to be challenged. We really don't want to be rebuked most of the time. But the warnings in the book of Hebrews are an important part of its message. We're called to persevere. Don't stray away. Don't neglect this great salvation. And there are dire warnings for those who do not persevere that it's a fearful, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's been said the preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And see, if you come to church and the preacher comforts you, well, that's great. But if he steps on your toes, that's a little less pleasant. And what the writer of the epistle of Hebrews is saying is bear with these words of exhortation. And that word bear with means put up with it, endure it. In fact, it's the exact same word that Jesus used in Matthew 17 when he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? How long do I have to put up with this? 
in essence. And over and over, it's used in that sense of, you're trying my patience here. And that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, some of these truths I've given you are difficult truths. And there's an enemy that is going to fight hard to get you to dismiss what I've said. But I urge you, bear with me here. And take to heart these exhortations. Even if it makes you a bit uncomfortable. The second thing, he just comments on Timothy. And we see that Timothy apparently was in prison and now has been released. And that's the only indication in all of the New Testament that Timothy was ever in prison. And we don't know where he was, why he was. We don't know any of the details. But he says here, I hope when I come to you that Timothy will come too. The third thing I want you to see, there's a greeting here for all the church leaders and all of the saints, all the members. And it reiterates the importance of greeting one another. And we find of all the one another commands in the New Testament to greet one another with a holy kiss, which was the appropriate greeting in that day. Here it might be a handshake or a holy hug or whatever, but a greeting of one another that nobody feels overlooked. Nobody feels left out. I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant or not where there's a politician, and he works the room. He goes to every single table, and he says something to every single person. He's working the room. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's saying, greet one another. And we want to make sure everybody is included in being greeted. And I read of Ed Welch talking about stepping back after a service and just looking out over the congregation to see who nobody's talking to. So he could go and talk to that person, and there wasn't anybody. Everybody was being greeted. Everybody was being engaged in conversation. Everybody was being included and embraced. And he said it was so gratifying. And there have been times I've had that exact same experience. I look out, and, and you're talking to each other. You're greeting one another. You're, you're interacting with one another. You're encouraging one another. And it's a blessing. But that's the ongoing encouragement to, to greet all the leaders, all of the saints, and then finally, we have a final benediction. Not all, uh, I said a moment ago that there's, uh, there's this benediction that, that, that we've looked at with a doxology in. The very end, we have one final word of benediction. Grace be with all of you. Again, it's a declaration. It's a pronouncement of God's grace to us, his people. The pastor's not conferring grace. He's reminding them that God is the giver of all grace. See, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the mediator between God and man. The pastor is not mediating grace to you. It's like in Roman Catholicism, you go to the, to the priest, you confess your sins, and he pronounces or gives you absolution. And apart from the priest serving as your mediator and hearing your confession and giving you absolution, you're in a whole lot of trouble. Well, that's not our role. It's not the role of the pastor to say, I announce to you, you're forgiven. If, if you come to me and say, I'm struggling with my assurance of salvation, I'm not going to say to you, well, I know you're a Christian because I don't know your heart. But I can tell you what the gospel is, and I can tell you what I see, and I can tell you the bases on which you can have assurance. But Jesus is that mediator between God and man. He is our great high priest. So we're not conferring grace. We're reminding you of the grace of God. God's grace is essential for every day of our lives. If you're going to do that which God wants you to do, it's going to be by grace. If you're going to endure the trials of this life, it's going to be by grace. If you're going to show grace to one another, it's because you're keenly aware that God has shown grace to you. But hear me, if you lose sight of God's grace, we're in trouble. We fall into a works mentality. 
and we either think that we're doing great in ourselves or we feel perpetually frustrated because we can never quite get to the place where we feel like we've done enough for God. But if we know his grace, we can rest in a God who rejoices over us with loud singing, who delights over his child. And that's a great blessing. Grace be with all of you. We are by grace forgiven, cleansed, justified, sanctified, and by grace he equips us with everything good that we might do his will and do that which is pleasing in his sight. Our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. And dear Christian, by his grace, he will carry you safely home.